Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 73 of the National Security Law Podcast. We are brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Tuesday morning, May 8th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, my, my Philadelphia 76ers prediction. I, I, I trusted the process. <laughs> you trusted the process. You're like the Sports Illustrated cover jinx, Steve. Well, I mean, and I talked about how the Mets were in first place in our last episode. The, oof, that went south in oof. a hurry. Yeah, that was that really the last episode? Uh, yeah, because they lost oh. six in a row at home. They got swept yeah. back-to-back by the Braves and the Rockies. Yeah, that'll do it. But now they're in Cincinnati, and everyone gets better on everyone the Reds. Everyone gets better in Cincinnati. Seriously, the Reds are on pace. Just, just I know we don't. I'm not going to talk much more about baseball, but the Reds are on pace right now to go 37 and 125. That's impressive. That would be really good. That's, that, right. that's, that's 1899 right. Cleveland Spiders territory. That, that's almost as good as the Toronto Raptors in the NBA playoffs. Woo! Ouch. Wow, you brought you brought receipts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have anything else to talk about today? You know, it's funny. So, so you sent me this very short list yesterday of, of things to talk about today, and I went back and looked at my, you know, sort of Twitter feed for the last week, and I was like, actually, there's some more to talk there's about. Few. We got a few. Well, um, you know, our sustaining member Dovey Mattis, Dovey has Mattis made a ha- weekly contribution has made has made. Although, you know, what exactly that contribution is, we're not so sure. Yeah, it's a secret contribution. It's a secret for the moment. Well, which which don't get me started about it being a secret contribution. I, I have some thoughts on that front. We will share them as our opening number, no doubt. And then after that, we'll uh, turn our attention to Gina Haspel. Yeah. Right. The uh, I think tomorrow is the big day, right, for at least the preliminary I think committee hearing. Sort of a commentary and preview there, and yep. then we'll, we'll we finally had Derby Day. Derby Day. So. And I don't just mean the, it actually almost did coincide with I the know, Derby. That was the best part. So Derby Day and Derby Day were in close proximity. It turned out maybe that was the cause of delay the whole time. They were just waiting. The rain in Kentucky? Yeah, I know, to create the pun. Uh, So we'll note the transfer of Al Darby, which did finally take place, and we'll comment on that. Uh, And then we've got something that I think we're both a little embarrassed we missed. Yep. Um, what was it? It's been like three weeks yes. since the Fourth Circuit ruled <laughs> in a case that it really could not be more in my areas of interest and yours as well. Uh, ruling on the POW eligibility and, and conflict status issues presented in the United States versus Hamidulin. So we're going to give a breakdown of this uh, very interesting, although I think not at all surprising uh, opinion. But boy, does it talk about a lot of issues that we care about. So um, buckle up for some IAC and NIAC. <laughs> And Article Four, and 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 a, and a civilian criminal prosecution with lots of discussion of international humanitarian law and a dissent. Yeah, it's loads of fun. So we got a ton to talk about there. Um, um, we also had last week the Office of the Director of National Intelligence did a Friday afternoon data dump of some more Pfizer-related statistics. Uh, it's always fun. We get the stats. We will unpack the one stat at least that's gathering headlines. I don't know if you want to talk about some of the others. I do. Just... I have. I, I. actually think this was. I think there are some real headlines beyond the 534 million stat. I'm totally at just that one. So we'll talk about that and explain it, and then I can't wait to hear what the other interesting elements. Were, oh, there are some. I was too lazy to read the whole thing, but <laughs> you, my friend, you will bail me out. No, I just talked to people who read the whole thing. Close enough. Uh, all right. We also we're going to do some quick litigation updates. There was a weird briefing order last week, Bobby, from the FISA court, speaking of FISA, in the ongoing ACLU mafia clinic effort to you know, pursue public access to previously classified FISA court opinions. We have a very strange update from the Al-Nashiri case where the CMCR still hasn't done anything, but apparently the Navy has in fact recalled your friend and mine, Brian Miser, to active duty. So there actually now is a clear, a learned counsel. Oh, all right. So that's interesting. Um, Severstall Exports, the lawsuit challenging the yeah. tariffs. There's a little development there. We'll, we'll note it. 
Um, and I want to say talk briefly about the sort of what's going on with DACA. Not so much a clear national security topic, but we've talked before about the intersection between immigration and nationwide injunctions. Interesting new development there as well. Yeah, I, 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 saw, I definitely don't see it as an, it's an important topic, not national security, but I think that the Fed court's issue of nationwide injunctions is an important one in yep. general about judicial power, and we need to note that. Um, we've got some Trumplandia, of course. It, it wouldn't be a weekly episode without some. So uh, we can talk about John Kerry's activities and people who really want the Logan Act to be a thing. Uh, we'll talk about perhaps a little preview of a possible subpoena to the president. And um, what else under that heading, Steve? Um, we're going to talk about also the sort of the scope of the Mueller investigation. We got a question about that over Twitter, and there's also a lot of news on. I guess it was Friday over the hearing yeah, before very Judge Ellis. Yeah, you know, Judge Ellis is a tough judge. Ju- tough this, I was going to say this is you got to know your Judge Ellis. This is Ju- Judge Ellis's showboating. Well, I guess I think I think it's very common when people don't really have familiarity with what actually goes on in hearings. To, to assume things about the way judges interact with counsel that may or may not tip their hand as much as people assume. Yep. Um, and then for frivolity, I thought we would try something fun. We're going to talk about um, late 90s teen angst movies. I love this topic. And and what are our, say, like top three? I, I am pleased to. I, that's good you said top three because I only brought three. You only brought three? Yeah. I hope it's not the same three. I doubt very much. I'm quite sure one of them will not be on all your right. list. She's, she's all that? I'm not saying any previews. You got you to gotta stay to the end of the program. All right, so let's dive into Doe versus Mattis first and foremost. <laughs> okay. All right, so what happened, Steve? We got notes late yesterday afternoon. Uh, judgment. Answer. Dun, dun, dun. Survey says. Uh, well, we got more than judgment. So we, we, learned, right. we learned four pieces of information, right? So one, the D.C. Circuit affirmed Judge Chutkin. Start off the bat, we know that that meant she affirmed the injunction barring Doe's transfer to a secret country that no one knows what it is, Saudi it's Arabia. Code name. KSA. Yes, that'll, that'll, that'll teach them. All right, so the, so the most important fact is we know already the panel has decided to affirm the injunction, yep. so he ain't being transferred anytime real soon. Correct. We know that Judge Srinivasan wrote a 45-page majority opinion, because sure. you can tell that from Pacer. Uh-huh, and joined by Judge Wilkins. Yep, and we know that Judge Henderson wrote a 34-page dissent. So Henderson is paying attention to this <laughs> Apparently. Case. All right, um, And we know that um, the government is supposed to show cause by tomorrow as to whether the opinion can be released in its current form or what redactions need to be oh. made in order to release it. Don't, don't, okay, so, <laughs> so let's... replace for Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Saudi. Saudi Arabia, KSA, and various other things that they missed the last time there was... And re- repatriation. Everything. All right, so, yeah, yeah. so can I start here? I, I mean, at some point, listen, I understand that information is not properly declassified until the government formally declassifies it. But at some point, can we drop the sort of charade that, that that there's any doubt as to what country this is or why any of this is being done, quote, in secrecy, unquote? What a pain in the butt. And so it's preventing us from actually telling you what the ruling <laughs> turns on. We might speculate a little bit nonetheless. But I, I think That's never should, stopped us. It, it won't stop us. I mean, look, I, I think we can uh, – let's say the following about what it probably says. It, there's a couple of possibilities at least based on what, in the two different relevant oral arguments, what seemed to be occupying the attention of the judges, and, of course, what we know the issues to be. Um, one possibility, the one that I hope is the main focus of the ruling, whichever, you know, it turned out the way it did, but I hope what they did was talk about the clash between the Valentine rule and the Munaf exception and reason with actual variables being discussed as to 
whether and why the Munaf exception shouldn't extend to this circumstance. I'd imagine that's a big part of the ruling. Uh, the part that may also be in there or may instead be in there, which I think would be too bad, um, at the oral argument both times, there was a lot of discussion about whether it was relevant and how it might be relevant and what would follow from the relevance of the merits of the case. That is, does the U.S. government have the authority to detain this guy as an enemy combatant? Um, I really don't think that should determine the transfer issue, but boy, it kept coming up. It could be that in the ruling is something to the effect that, well, he can't be transferred because we don't yet know if he's even lawfully detained. And boy, I think that's apples and oranges. Yep. I hope that's not what the holding turns on. Um, I, what I, happens next? Well, I, I just want to say, I suspect, I mean, I'm just going to go on a limb here because why not, right? Yeah. My predictive ability, well, for sports, it's bad. Yeah, so you, um, you've burned all your bad mojo on sports. Right. So I actually suspect that the opinion is actually exactly what we thought it would be, which is a careful thoughtful discussion of the gap between Valentine and Munaf, right? Yep. Which you've talked about at length, which we've talked about on the podcast before. And that all that basically happened here is Judge Srinivasan carefully explaining why, you know, as a matter of first impression, he thinks the best answer is that this is more a Valentine case than a Munaf case. And Judge Henderson, you know, writing about how, from her perspective, this is just Munaf, 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 Munaf. Right. And actually, that would be Perfectly okay. And as as people have been following this know, I think I'd probably resolve that the other way. I'd probably extend Munaf. But I think, as I've said several times, I think it's well within the realm of, of reasonable disagreement. And, and I certainly can appreciate the power of saying, look, when it comes to citizens and, and involuntary transfers, you should err on the side of the protective yep. rule, Valentine, yep. not yep. the exception, Munaf. Right. All right. So so here's where things get really interesting. And here's – so so sorry, let me say one, one last thing before we go to what, what happens next. Um I don't think I, I think you probably agree that that there certainly isn't baked into this a ruling on the merits of the legality of dose detention, right? Oh, there certainly shouldn't be. In fact, I'd be shocked right. if there was. And and so to me, like one, of the, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that while we're having this lovely conversation about this fascinating case that I think is now heading to the Supreme Court, there's still the mil, the, yep. the the actual elephant in the room is still there and hasn't been noticed. And in and, and the merits issue, we say every week, Judge Chutkin. Reach the merits. Let's go. It's it, This guy's been held since September. The legal issues are what are before you. It's all teed up. It's been briefed. Time for a ruling on the merits, which even if it comes down, whichever way it comes down, it's going to get appealed too. And by the way, they haven't litigated the underlying factual issues yet to begin with. It's, yeah. The, the ruling on the merits that's pending right. is one on just the legal issues. So, so all this is just to say that, like, so, so let me walk through what I think is going to happen now. So the government could theoretically try to go on bonk, but yeah. realistically the yeah, votes aren't there. Well, yeah. and the votes aren't there. I yeah. mean, so so Judge Srinivasan and Judge Wilkins are hardly, you know, maybe Judge Wilkins is a bit to the left of the center of the court, but Judge Srinivasan, if you look at who are the active judges on the D.C. Right. circuit right now. There's no reason to think they're going to do better with the full court. No, no, no. Um, I mean, maybe they want to be able to get another dissent, but they already have one. Yeah. Right? So, so from the government perspective, and, and especially because from their perspective, I suspect time is of the essence. Yeah. I think you go right to the Supreme Court. I agree. Here's the problem, right? They're not going to get a stay because the status quo right. here is no right. transfer, right. right? They're not going to get five justices on an emergency application to say, oh, no, it's fine. Go ahead and transfer. That's him. right. But the, the interesting question is, can they get cert granted? I would think they can get four votes for that. Oh, I think they I think might they would well get six win or, the whole I thing. I think they would yeah. get six or seven votes for that. But here's the problem. Not till October, right? So, so the court is not going to you know jump through hoops here. I don't think the go the government may try to seek a stay. They're not going to get one. And so, what we're looking at is a cert petition that gets granted 
probably on an expedited basis, right? but not like an early special argument session, right? And so the next oral argument session the court currently has is the beginning of October. Mm. And so that means a decision no, no earlier than, say, early November. Okay, now, but isn't that an argument for having an, a special argument session? I mean, what is the historical practice with that? How rare is it? It's very rare. Thresh- it's I very mean, rare, the but- court hasn't had one, I think, since 1970. Well, so it depends on how you define special. So for um, one of the campaign finance cases, oh gosh, I think it was McConnell versus FEC, the court had a September argument. Mm-hmm. Um, they might have done that for Citizens United too, like a re-argument where it was like September, so right before the court came back in the session. So, you know, that I think is not beyond the pale. To actually have a special summer argument, the last time the court did that, I think, was U.S. versus Nixon, the Watergate tapes case So here's in where the timing gets really tight and interesting. They're all presumably still there, yeah. right? Yeah. They're, they're still fighting out the, 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 the billions of opinions <laughs> that have not, like Dalmazi, that have not dropped yet. And yeah, Carpenter I don't think they're and, fighting about Dalmazi. No, no, maybe not. But the point is, this isn't like... Hey, some of us are off in Vienna or Salzburg, wherever it is they go. Um, they're there. So if this were to be petitioned and then it went through the briefing cycle and granted quickly enough, maybe, just maybe, they'd still be around. But you're shaking your head I, thinking, I'm just, they can't, I, I would, can't run fast enough to get done? No, it's not that they can't. It's that they won't. Right? So so I, I teach my federal court students every year that we have to be very careful to distinguish between what the Supreme Court can do and what it will do. Yeah. Right? Um, sure. I mean, if it were truly an emergency. I mean, the the... The Pentagon Papers case, right? The, the the whole case went from, like, you know, filing in the district court to the Supreme Court in, I think, like, 26 days. Yeah, so they can do... They can. You're just, you just don't see the exigency here. I don't, I don't think they're going to look at this... I don't think they're going to look at this case as justifying that degree of, of emergency so and expediency. I, I agree with that unless the government can come in with a representation, a credible representation, that the deal that's on the table will expire in a certain amount of time if they can't get this worked out. But um, So I think the takeaway is he stays... In U.S. custody, there's even more pressure on the merits as a result. That would make it even more outrageous for the district court to just continue to sit on the merits ruling, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's exactly what I'm worried about. So I wrote a piece for Just Security this morning that basically said, you know, yeah, this is a big deal, right? And yeah, it's probably going to go to the Supreme Court. I sort of, you know, the secrecy piece, I think, is not going to help it get to, I mean, the Supreme Court's never had a classified argument, right? So so I think the government might actually declassify all of this as it goes <laughs> to the Supreme Court. Saudi Arabia. And we'll all be shocked. Shocked, I say, that it's Saudi Arabia. Oh my God, it was the Saudis. Did Didn't I, see that coming. Now, there, there's something we haven't talked about here. Is there anything that would prevent the government from right this moment saying, all right, fine, release him. There's the door. And he walks out into the streets of Erbil or wherever he is in the Kurdish region of Iraq, presumably. And the Iraqis pick him up? And the Iraqis or the Kurds grab him and they send him off. So, so in I fact, think... Because, of, of course, he has no legal right to be in Iraq. He has no legal right to be in Iraq. Unlike the... So the, you and I have had this fight before, right? Unlike the petitioners in Munaf, he did not voluntarily travel to Iraq, right? But leaving that aside, so I think if the government released him... Having coordinated with the Iraqis, you, oh, this is a big, big thing you just injected in I, there. No, no, I, I'm just saying, right. they just opened the door and say, "We don't know what's happening." It's I think, not our I, th- problem. I think the government could do that, but I think, I think if it, ju- I think it would, if, if, if it just coincidentally happened that that one hour later he was picked up by the Iraqis, I'd be a little, you know, Judge Chuck yeah, might what not could be actually happy about ha- that. I mean, but what could actually happen, right? So it happens. There's no injunction barring them from releasing him right now. That's right, but I think there'd be a pretty strong argument that at that point he was in the, he was still in constructive custody, right? That if the that that there's at least a, a factual claim 
that oh, the, I, have that, no, right. I have no doubt that after the fact, he's off in Saudi Arabia. He's not in U.S. custody, and the complaint would come in saying, "Hey, that was a that was a setup." Well, you know, how could they prove that? Um, and what and what would the remedy be? Yeah, I mean, listen, we'll we'll see. Yeah. Um, I, Anyways, I I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility yeah. that this guy gets released and falls into Iraqi custody, and who knows what happens next. Indeed, all this is just to say, you know. Two points, right? One, enough with the stupid secrecy, and two, enough with the lack of a ruling on his habeas case. Certainly so. Which, okay. by the way, I think the government's going to win. And the end result of this, ironically, if they don't just outright release him and allow the Iraqis to pack him off, right. I think the end result of this is this guy's detainable as an enemy combatant so long as we're in conflict with the Islamic so, State. So, Bobby, let me ask you a question. I mean, I know a- a- anyone anyone who has ever listened to us knows that what your position is, right, and what mine is on this issue. Um does the government's litigation strategy and does its, you know, clear effort to moot the merits of his habeas case give you any reason to suspect that they're not as confident as you are in what the substantive answer to the legal question is? No, I don't think they would judge the analysis any differently than me. I think that it's mm. really costly to have an American citizen in this situation. They never set out, as we've said endlessly on this yeah. show, they never set out to create the situation. True. They didn't want the situation. It fell into their laps, and they've been treating it like a hot potato ever since. Um, if they are forced by dint of the, the transfer ruling to hold on to the guy and their inability to politically uh, stomach bringing him into the United States, which I think is clearly the case. They're not going to bring him into the United States yeah. if they can possibly avoid it. And then through the litigation process, they're going to defend to the to the hilt their legal grounds to detain him as an enemy combatant. The the funny result is they, in in a certain sense, will be forced to hold him. Yep. All right. Well, all this to say, I suspect that by the time we sit down to do episode seventy four, we'll actually have the opinions. Yep. So our contributing member will once again contribute. Indeed. Um, Thank you, W. Mattis. We appreciate your. We're going to send a tote bag and a lapel pin. To, to some undisclosed location in Iraq. Exactly. Do we have tote bags and lapel pins? Well, we should. Somebody um, get on that. And I just want to say, I mean, Bobby, I think if the, if the government goes to the Supreme Court, the court takes this case. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, no, no, look, I think this is the sort of magnitude of case that not with, you know, this is not one where you're like, well, we really need a circuit split. No, no, and also, you know? I, mean, I mean, listen, you, you know the statistic. I mean, the government has asked the Supreme Court for certiorari in nine post-September 11th cases that yeah. are clearly national security cases. And you know what their track record is. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, nine for nine. Yeah, so, and, and, and if they ask for it to start here, which I think they should, they'll get they it. should get it. Yep, I agree. All okay. Right. Um, so uh, rela- um, let, let's let's quickly do Darby Day, and then we'll do Haspel. Okay. Right? So related to the sort of question of releasing detainees, yeah, uh, right, is the belated but at least finally complete um, transfer of Ahmed al-Darby, who had pled guilty in a Guantanamo military commission, um, and as part of the plea agreement had agreed to serve a large chunk of his sentence in Saudi Arabia. So he was transferred finally um, a couple months late, or six weeks, I think, late, right? Yeah. Um, back to Saudi Arabia last week, which, of course— Chris, the awkward reality that Guantanamo's population has only gone down since Donald Trump became president. You know, you keep saying that. You might motivate him to change that. He but doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh, I'm sure it's... Look, there's... Should, should that be our title this there? week? President Trump doesn't no, listen to this podcast? No, no, no. Too much of that already. Um, I'm sure during the commercial breaks, he tunes us in. Oh, yeah. So uh, I think early on, we really wondered, did the failure to transfer Darby in accordance with the terms of the plea agreement signify a, a plan on the part of the administration to flout the agreement, to, to draw a firm line, to be to be hardcore about this? 
I think it's pretty clear now that no, it was simply they had failed to take the steps necessary in timely fashion. I mean, you could tell a story that no, no, somebody did try to flout the agreement and then that that resistance internally got overcome. Maybe. I think it's more likely the simple explanation is they just didn't organize in enough time to effectuate the transfer on time. And maybe add into that a little sense that somehow it'll go down better insofar as the White House is paying attention. The whole thing will go down better if they just look like they were dragging their, their Maybe. Uh, feet a little bit. But I'll just to say that given that this comes out, came out the same week as Mattis filed his report on you know what to do with Guantanamo. Yeah, maybe that helped concentrate minds on, look, one of the things we got to do is make sure that people will plead yep. if we're going to have the military commission system. Maybe. Although that that gets us back to Harvey Rishikoff and why he was fired, but, but we digress. Um We'll come back, I think, probably next episode or one after that to the continuing unlawful command influence mess before yeah, that, Judge Pohl. That's that's boiling. All right. Okay. Uh, um, you Gina wanted to Haspel. talk about Gina Haspel. I do. So we've talked about her nomination a little bit before. Um, you know, I think I took the position that I was not categorically opposed, but wanted to make wanted to wanted to see this as a chance for. You know, the CIA to come clean, right, for real disclosure and meaningful understanding of, like, what her role was. Um, We're getting close to the hearing, and I'm a little bit perturbed, right, by two things. One, um, the CIA has engaged in this massive public propaganda campaign where it has selectively disclosed parts of her professional file, the parts that make her look good, and has refused to turn over, Bobby, not just to the public, but to senators behind closed doors, um, information, classified information about her specific role, for example, at the Thailand black site. Do we, right? do we know for sure there hasn't been such there are classified senators, disclosure? There are senators who have said that they have not been given access to the files they've requested. Okay. Well, okay, but let's parse that a little bit. There, That raises the question, what exactly are they requesting? Is it really obvious that that is something that is for sure relevant for this person's confirmation. I, I'm not saying it is or isn't, right. but I, I can well imagine that there is a realm of reasonable disagreement about just how much stuff has to be disclosed and that some of the people most opposed to her maybe are, are pushing a line on so that. So I'm I, am, I, am, I am unaware of any claim that the requested materials are irrelevant. Right. I haven't heard any of that from CIA. I haven't heard any of that from the government side. But there are senators who are saying we have not received the materials we've requested. And the response has not been that's because they're irrelevant. The response has been that's because they're classified. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so maybe some selective disclosure is going on. I, I don't think there's any question about that. And to make matters worse, we have, um, you know, there's no one quite like the president to sort of, you know, boil things down to their, their finer points. Well, before we move on to yeah. him, going back to the other thing, though, look, I can I'm not trying to quibble, but I, I can't help it imagine that there are requests that are going down to a level of granularity such as you know name the particular detainee who was in this situation name this or that that in the minds of the CIA folks yeah it's relevant but it's a, it's a detail that's not strictly necessary and goes to a level of sensitivity about maybe Thai cooperating authority. I don't think so that's so, there so could be something. I don't like think that. that's their call, right? I mean, so if this were oversight, fine, right? But this is a confirmation hearing. Why is that different? Because this is a voluntary effort to confirm someone to run the agency. If the government wants to confirm this person, they have the burden to me of providing documentation that satisfies the senators about whether she has committed acts that disqualify her from holding the position. But you're, you're suggesting that they 
they don't get to make the call that it, therefore if the senators ask for it, they got to turn it over full stop and there's no limit to that? Or it's an argument or senators who don't receive the information are justified in voting no because they didn't receive the information they asked for. They're, they're certainly justified in voting no on any grounds they want to, so I can hardly quibble with that. So, so all this is to say, right, I had predicted from the get-go that I saw this as at least a bit of a fight over how much the government was going to disclose about her role, right? And I think that, that we're, we're on the precipice of the hearing, and I think there are still real concerns about that. Um, there's also this weird story, I don't know if you saw this in the Washington Post, that apparently last week Haspel went to the White House and suggested withdrawal. Yeah, so that to me is really interesting. She, she Look, I think that's a there's a human element to this, right? Of course there is. And, and it's easy to see how someone who's lived their entire you know, entire multi-decade career uh, undercover in the agency or under under classified status and now has been sort of put into the limelight under the microscope in this way is beginning to think that I'm not really sure this is such a great idea. And clearly she she at least floated the possibility, maybe made the decision or almost made the decision to withdraw and that there was a, a strong push to talk her out of that. And it looks like she's been talked out of it because she made the rounds. Yeah, although uh, I mean... Which, so- so, it's hard to imagine her with wanting to withdraw at this point. Well, so here's the thing, right? Like, if you think you did nothing wrong, right, go before the Senate, you know, Intelligence Committee and, t- and, and you know, defend your actions, right? I mean, I don't, I guess I'm just, I'm trying to figure Wait, are out. You, are you suggesting that if you have, that, that, that doesn't sound right to me, that if you think you did nothing wrong, then there's no, no circumstance in which it's reasonable for you to nonetheless want to withdraw rather than go through the, the grinding process. I think people withdraw in that circumstance all the time, even though they're not. Who did cons- nothing wrong? I think people routinely decide they don't, on, on close inspection, when it's controversial and there are people criticizing what they did, it doesn't count as some sort of admission of guilt that they're thinking about withdrawing. I'm not saying it's an admission That's of... That's what it sounds like. I'm not saying it's an admission of guilt. I'm saying it is a it is a refusal to... to listen, I, I thought all along, and I thought I was very clear about this, that this was an opportunity for Haspel to acknowledge the mistakes and the missteps that the agency made to come clean about the RDI program and to, and to make the case for a sort of, you know... Um, a, a forward-looking, better vision for CIA, right. right? And that, and that, that was the way to sort of to sail through the confirmation process. You know, yes, mistakes were made, right? Yes, I was part of them. Here's how we're going to avoid them happening again. But you think that she's not doing that? I think, I think this this whole story seems to me like an effort to say, you know, we're not. Re- I mean, look at look at the defenses of her, right? The defenses of her are not. Yes, mistakes were made, but she's the right person. The the, the mistakes, the the defenses are, you know, you weren't there, you right, weren't sure. in the room, you don't know what you're talking about. So, but question is it what what counts here? What she says because we're going to find yeah. out, right? She's yeah. going to have to testify, and that's the moment that really counts. What does she? publicly say, will she denounce what uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques, or will she say... You could just say torture, you know. Yeah, you could. (laughs) You could say torture, you could say cruel and human degrading punishment. Um, You can also nitpick at every word that comes out. Look, what the point is, she is going to have to answer those questions, and she's either going to say... She's either going to refuse to answer, in which case I think you'd be perfectly justified in saying, ah, she's not doing what I thought would be enough as a minimum, a necessary condition for you to be willing right. to be, you know, at least vaguely comfortable with her taking the position. She may do that. 
But she may also say just what you want her to say. She may say, look, we made big mistakes. I was associated with Great. these mistakes. Listen, if, that, if that's what happens, right, fine, right? But then come clean about it, right? And provide access to the senators of the records from like the Thailand black site, right? Tell, explain what her role was in the destruction of the videotapes, right? I mean, these uh, the are the- proof, The proof will be in the pudding yeah. real soon. Like, right. We'll definitely know. So, so two quick last points about that. One, um, I do think it is telling, and frankly, from her perspective, not helpful, that the president's new argument for why she has to be confirmed is because she was she was tough on terror, like the not despite the abuses of the oh, past, right, no, that's a but feature, because not a bug. of them. No, no, look, that to me is a real problem for her, right? Like for the for the for the affirmative case, Regina Haspel, the fact that the president saying we need to confirm her because she was quote tough on terrorists unquote. Look, I, any any involvement by the president, especially through Twitter, is almost certainly going to be counterproductive and counterproductive. But I don't think it's I don't think I don't. Like Trump saying we should confirm her because she's tough on terrorism is not surprising or interesting to me. What is surprising and interesting in a in a very bad way is Sarah Huckabee Sanders yes. playing a gender card. Yes. Saying oh, don't, oh my gosh, I got so I, pissed and I knew, off about and this. And I knew I could inflame you by mentioning this. So right, so Sarah Huckabee Sanders tweeted on Saturday that it's hypocritical for Democrats to be opposed to the first woman nominee to ever run CIA um, because she was too tough on terror. Well, yeah, it look that and setting aside the tough on terror element, it's the it's the invocation of gender loyalty. I'm sure, is, I'm sure she which voted is every for, bit as ridiculous to invoke for Gina Haspel as it was to invoke for Hillary. Clinton. I was going to say, did Sarah Huckabee Sanders vote for Hillary, and if right. not, is she a hypocrite? Right. Well, and, but conversely, for for those uh, Hillary supporters who did play the gender card, and there were some. Listen, and, and uh, I right that that was absolutely every bit as wrong as what Sarah Huckabee Sanders did. To say that you should vote for her only because she's a woman. Yeah. Yes, I agree yeah. with that. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was some horrible, was it Madeleine Albright said something like there's yeah. a special place in hell for women who don't support other women? Yes. That's that's just an awful way to. I agree. All right. But two, so two, one, I think this is my last point, I think, although it's related. So related to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' point about being opposed to women. So Jenna McLaughlin reported for CNN yesterday that there's a break the glass plan in case this falls apart, um, and that the current leading person to be the next nominee if, if Haspel falls through um, is not, as I think some people had feared, Senator Tom Cotton, but is Susan Gordon, um, who's the deputy director of yeah. national intelligence. Well, that's interesting. Um, it's interesting in a couple of respects. So one, um, Susan Gordon has none of the RDI baggage, mm -hmm. right? She's been a sort of intel, you know, NSA, DNI person for a long time. That's not to say that, you know, nothing which, bad which, happened there. Oh, but, that wasn't where I was going to go uh, with that. I'll, uh, I'm not sure uh, that that should you know disqualify. No, no. I'm quite sure it shouldn't. But um, it does raise a question like, well, wait, why is that person coming over to, to run the CIA? But, of course, lots of people come from outside to run the CIA. Susan Gordon's a very well-respected intel yep. professional. That would be a really strong pick. If the Haspel nomination goes away, I'd, I'd be pretty happy to see Susan Gordon. And so, and so there are two things that I just want to say about that. One, see Sarah Huckabee Sanders? I can support a woman for CIA director. <laughs> um, but two— You're just happy it's not. Tom Cotton. Well, as, but no, right. So, too, there are a lot of folks like Bobby on my, you know, in my in my orbit who, you know, were who don't who aren't happy about the Gina Haspel nomination, but were very worried that we would end up with someone much worse mm -hmm. if it's not Haspel. Like, I mean, for whatever her faults, right? I mean, people generally respect Haspel, think she'd be a very, you know, good administrator of the agency, etc. Well, here's an alternative who I think people can get just as excited about who isn't Tom so Cotton. This raises this raises a very serious question. What is the sourcing on this rumor about Susan Gordon being the backup? Is it attributed in a convincing way to I guess what I'm worried is you, you kind of wonder, like, wait, has this been floated out there to kind of give courage to the convictions of those who might vote against 
Haspel, but are afraid to do so because they're worried that Tom Cotton might be next? So McLaughlin sources her story to, quote, national security officials in the administration and some Republicans. Yeah. So, Hard to know what to make of it, right? This are, but, 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 I mean, if that, unless she's lying, and I have no reason if she's lying, that's well, not like Democrats trying to sort of say, hey, look, we have a good backup. No, I'm not saying she's li- Certainly not saying she's lying. What I'm saying is it's very hard to know what national security officials in the administration refers to. That could refer to people who really don't want Gina Haspel nominated and are, are in fact, trying to give people a little hope that they need not worry too much about. Which, you know, again, interesting. So, all right, we'll see what happens. All right, um, Hamadullin, we are are dumb. How did we miss this? You know, it is... so I'm just sitting down to do our annual supplement to our casebook, right, where we're supposed to be like, hey, here's all the things that happened in the last 12 months in national security and counterterrorism law. Um, it's quite a project, and usually the way I try to avoid it being a total disaster, I try to keep like a relatively good running tally of what's going on. Yep. And I totally missed this one. It's almost like we have a weekly podcast where we try to cover the major I know, legal right? events in national and, security. And, and whoops. All right, let's 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 dig into it. So First, who is Hamadullin? Yeah, a little backgrounder. Uh, Irek Hamadullin is a Russian, which is funny. Ah. Uh, this guy uh, probably has a good biography in him. He was a... Uh, a Red Army soldier in the 1980s. Uh, he became radicalized. First, first Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. So he, so he has that experience. Although I can't recall if he fought in Afghanistan then. Um, he became radicalized in the 90s. He spent time in Chechnya, later in Afghanistan. Was looking to live under a, uh, a you know, a very strong Sharia regime. Uh, after 9/11, he fled to Pakistan. He was arrested there. He was shipped off to Russia. Ultimately, he was released. He ends up back in Afghanistan. Uh, became involved with either or both the Taliban or the Haqqani network. You know, that gets a little murky at the borderlands there. In any event, in 2009, he's captured by United States and Afghan uh, forces, and he's uh, accused of involvement in a particular attack on Afghan border police and then more generally thought to be involved in a variety of other um, specific violent acts. So he's at Bagram as a, as a military detainee of the United States for a while, uh, and you got to remember, this is at a time when we're trying to wind down our detention operations in Afghanistan and gradually get that turned over to where if you're captured there, you end up just shunted into the Afghan, uh, air quote to your justice system. <laughs> um, and there was a big debate that was public at the time. Should this guy be brought to the United States? Since there is, and this is one of the cases where it's not just that he's some foot soldier. We actually think we could prove that he's involved in particular attacks. So should he be brought to Guantanamo to face a military commission charge or what? What should we do with him now that we're winding down those detention operations? Same thing had happened in Iraq and there'd been a real fiasco at the end of the Iraqi detention operations in that we didn't come up with a good plan to prosecute certain individuals we had in our custody. Well, in this case, the Obama administration, of course, wasn't going to bring him to Guantanamo as a new detainee. They ended up bringing him to the United States to face civilian criminal charges. Uh, he, he's got a raft of charges involving all sorts of things that you would expect, uh, material support, but also a variety of particular uh, involvement, involvement in particular violent acts. So uh, he moves to dismiss the charges pretrial on the ground that he should get combatant immunity from being prosecuted for his war-related actions, which is the standard sort of traditional notion that if you are a lawful participant in hostilities, a priv- privileged belligerent or privileged combatant, 
Um, you can't be charged for things that are not themselves war crimes, such as attacking enemy forces in a non-deceitful way, right? Um, you could still be charged for attacking civilians. But here, if he was charged with attacking uh, Afghan or American soldiers, well, if he has combatant immunity, well, that's what happens in war. That's why soldiers ordinarily don't prosecute Indeed. the other soldiers they capture. Funny um, how that works. Yeah. And so this, you know, the district court uh, assumed without deciding that, in fact, the relevant context was an international armed conflict, which meant that, in theory, there could be POW status, but then found that, as President Bush had determined back in 2002, Taliban uh, fighters categorically are unqualified for POW status and, and don't get it. Therefore, his, his motion to dismiss was denied. It went to the jury. He was convicted on all counts. He got multiple life sentences. Steve, he took it to the Fourth Circuit. What did they think? Uh, they thought a lot of things, right? <laughs> so we got this divided... De decision, right? All three judges wrote separately. Yeah. Um, basically, the Fourth Circuit, I mean, the, the sort of quick and dirty version is the Fourth Circuit affirmed by a two to one vote um, for a couple of, I think, interesting reasons. So, um, first, right, the court said, well, we're just not even. We don't think the army regulation, right, which Hamid Dalton had relied on to say, wait, I'm entitled to the status, could possibly supersede the relevant statutory and treaty obligations. Let me unpack the army yeah. regulation real quick. So army regulation 190-8 is the standard army rules for what the procedures are when you have a captive. Um, and it includes, I think, in part 1-6 or yeah. section 1-6. It includes this sort of standard operating procedure for, all right, there you are, you and your platoon come across some person, you got to figure out what to do with them. There are all these possibilities. Maybe they're a civilian, maybe they're an enemy uh, privileged belligerent or combatant. Yep. Uh, maybe it's something else. Uh, and it talks about how you're supposed to, con when in doubt, you convene a three-officer panel. They figure out when they listen to it. You know, I'll give you an example. During the Persian Gulf War, there were loads of both Iraqi soldiers and Iraqi civilians who were coming up to the Allied lines, turning themselves in. And, and so they just created sort of a uh, assembly line style set of proceedings to sort the wheat from the chaff, figure out who's, who's actually an Iraqi soldier, who's a civilian, and what should become of all these people. Um, in the post-Island period, uh, this used to be something we talked about a lot, right? That right. We, did, we don't do this. Right, no Article 5 hearings. No, no, none of this, this stuff goes on. Uh, and, but there's a reason why, and, and the reason isn't that we just don't ever ask. It's that the question of whether somebody could be a POW has been decided sweepingly or categorically for all categories of possible combatants in a way that precludes that option. And I think quite rightly, I, don't, I, think, it's, I think that you can have interesting arguments about the fall and in, in, in midwinter of 2001 to 2002, you can have interesting arguments about Taliban fighters back then because you can argue that it was an international armed conflict between the United States and Afghanistan. And you could even argue that the uh, Taliban fighters, at least in some cases, were the regular armed forces of Afghanistan or a qualifying militia, although there's obviously very good arguments running the other way. But here's the thing. None of those arguments are any good, in my opinion, in 2009. It's preposterous, in my opinion, to, to suggest that it's still an international armed conflict where the rule of international armed conflict is such that you must have a state party on both sides. And whatever ambiguities there may be about when the recognition of the Karzai government, you know, much more than a decade ago, when that really had the effect of converting things into uh, a non-international armed conflict for which there is no POW status. Right. Whatever debates there are, are, are so far in the rearview mirror that I think it's borderline frivolous, if not frivolous, to, to raise them now. For the Geneva claim, 
right? So, certainly. Okay. What yeah. about what about what, so there are two other arguments going on here though, right? One is that there's a common law combatant immunity. Yeah, right? which which in my opinion, there is no such thing as a combatant's immunity claim that is broader than the law of armed conflict in, in American common law. There's there's no such case. There's no evidence of this. He invokes public authority immunity right. the way a cop would if somebody sues a cop for shooting them and say hey I, you know I was, I was cloaked with public authority to fire my gun uh, the court says I think quite rightly that whatever the, whatever the possible applicability of that to the actions of a foreign government agent a here this dude's not a foreign government agent is the whole freaking point uh, and, and B, it, it, whatever boundaries this is, cannot and should not extend beyond what the law of armed conflict actually describes as combatant's immunity. Or it eviscerates, as the court says, quite properly, it eviscerates the privilege. Okay. Um, and what about the what about the Section 32 argument? Yeah, so one of the many charges, there were a bunch of yeah. charges. This is just one of the many things for which he was convicted uh, about using uh, force. Uh, was it against an aircraft? Yeah. Right? Um, do you have the language there of the statute that he's kind of playing off of? Um, so, conspire in an attempt to destroy an aircraft of the U.S. Armed Forces. Right, but there's some particular language below that I think gets, it provides a little bit of a textual hook to try to say, hey, it was a lawful use of force, and if it's a lawful use of force, it can't be a violation of Section 32. Whoever willfully sets fire to, damages, destroys, disables, or wrecks any aircraft in the special aircraft jurisdiction of the United States. And it goes on, has a little right. bit lower... Civil uh, aircraft registered in a country other than the United States, right? And so the question is um, whether the plain language applies to unlawful acts committed in a combat zone. Yeah, so I, I guess I... You know, I have trouble understanding quite why this is a terribly interesting argument, but I think, if I recall correctly from my skim... Well, wait, there's, I mean, so there's a 1994 OLC... The, the whole, I think the whole fight here starts with this 1994 OLC opinion, right? And the OLC opinion said 32B should not be construed to, quote, have the surprising and almost certainly unintended effect of criminalizing actions by military personnel that are lawful under international law. Right, so you have to have a combat zone where lawful participants in the hostilities shoot at an aircraft and th and then you can't apply section 32 to that any more than you could apply any other criminal law involving ordinary acts of violence so it's, so this so, guy is not a lawful participant in the hostility but so no if you were so what. if he were a privileged belligerent you would think 32 doesn't apply uh if it depends right so if uh if it was a lawful act of war then yeah, I think that you'd have combatant privilege, and if you didn't, you might interpret Section 32 not to apply. Although I'd want to look at the OLC opinion to see, were they just saying, look, those people would have combatant privilege yeah. against a Section 32 prosecution? So listen, I, I've always thought about this case, and, and I've said this, I think, many times on the record, um, that these are hard questions, but this is not the right case for the hard questions, right? That, that the government's legal theory, some of the arguments the government has made, and some of the rulings the district court made, I think, have problems as applied to other cases, right? And and may may raise serious, like, are perhaps too broad, right, for fact patterns other than this one. You know, I just, if we're talking about the POW issue, I just do not think that beyond once you get beyond a Taliban fighter captured during the stage where you could make an argument yep. that the Taliban were the de facto government of Afghanistan, which was, you know, you know, Almost some of our students are nearly that old. It's so far back in the past. I just think it's a, it's a frivolous argument today. Now, the, so this raises the question. So wait, so why is there a dissent? Indeed, this, the dissent's very interesting. So the dissent says Judge King, who's not exactly a sort of firebrand. Well, it's an executive deference yep. dissent. So this is you got to look at the nuances here. The the dissent says, look, 
we all agree that there's two questions. It's just like they teach it at the JAG school when you talk about detainee uh, status. I was just there last do, week. Do you have the right kind of conflict? That is to say, is it a common Article Two international armed conflict? Because if, if the answer is no, then full stop, there's no POW status. Uh, and if, if it is the right kind of conflict, then do you have the right kind of person, which is to say, do you have someone who falls into one of the Geneva Convention 3, Article 4A, sub 1 through 6 categories? Uh, and King is simply saying, look, I don't think it's clear what the position of the executive branch is on these questions. And therefore, I really think that we need to remand this to create a process where the executive branch currently takes a clear stance on this. The majority, uh, that's, that's basically the reason Wilkins wrote separately with a separate concurrence. It wasn't disagreement with Judge Floyd. But Wilkins says, look, as to, as to Judge King's point, we absolutely know what the executive branch's view is. On the POW qualification issue, the very fact that they're prosecuting this guy tells you the executive branch thinks that, in fact, they do not qualify for POW status. And that has been unchanged since February 2002 when President Bush very clearly said in a very public document that that is the position of the government. There's absolutely no reason to question that the possibility to su suggest that the government's changed its position on that. I think that's quite right. I do think it's a little a slightly more interesting to say, well, wait, what about is given that that same document from President Bush back in 2002 said that this is an international armed conflict at that time vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban, yep. not Al-Qaeda, not Al but vis-a-vis -vis the Taliban, um, do we have a clear statement that the executive branch later decided, okay, now it's a NIAC. Um, the, the dissent seems to suggest we don't have that, but the majority quite properly says absolutely we do. In 2016, in this famous uh, sort of magnum opus summarizing yeah. the Obama administration's legal and policy positions on all the situations of armed conflict following from 9-11, it very clearly says everything we're involved in currently is a NIAC. Yeah. So I think it's I think King is just misguided. I understand the desire to to make sure you know the executive's position in this. King says I would basically defer to those positions. Right. We know what those positions are. The majority has it right here. And that's here. basically Judge Wilkinson's concurrence. Exactly. All right. Well, um, there may well be a petition for rehearing on Bonk, so so stay tuned. Yeah, this, there shouldn't be. Yeah, this well, one this one should be over. Maybe it's. An, I, what, what what don't you agree with with uh, what we just said? It's not that I don't agree with what we just said. It's that at least some of the sort of claims in the briefing and at least in the district court, I think, were really problematic as a matter of sort of closing the door on potentially meritorious assertions of combatant immunity in cases where you and I might think that there is a much stronger basis for it. Maybe, but it's hard to imagine that the en banc, let alone the Supreme Court, well, would want to because Hamidullah. Right. What's his name? Hamid Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to benefit from any of this. Nope. All right. Um, so uh, next up on our on our list of how little we had to talk about this week, um, <laughs> the ODNI, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, Friday afternoon document dump with some transparency statistics. Bobby, one, got a lot of headlines. Got a ton of headlines, and, and it was clear that it would because it's – whenever you talk about the uh, data on the number – of uh, call data records. CDRs. It's, it's by definition going to be a big number. It's going to be in the millions. So here, here's yeah, the Yeah, although this was a much bigger number than previous well, big numbers. It, it, which is exactly why I said you knew this was going to get some attention. <laughs> but let's understand what it does and doesn't signify. So the context is we're talking about good old metadata. So let's put on our, our Snowden era hats. For, for, for this piece of data, there's some yeah, content yeah, no, no, coming. We're, we're, this is the only I one I, I, as okay. I said earlier, this is the only one I focused on. All right, I'm ready. Okay, so we'll talk more about other things in a minute. Uh, go back to the post-Snowden controversies and the revelations about bulk collection of metadata and how there was, you know, the haystack and all the rest. Everybody with me? Good. You'll <laughs> also recall that um, there was quite a lot of blowback to that in the USA Freedom Act in 2015 
that uh, old chestnut. Yeah, that, there you go. We haven't said that in a while. Drink. Um, it was widely described as having put an end to the bulk collection of metadata, which is true in the sense that the, one of the main effects of uh, the USA Freedom Act was to stop the practice of the government receiving and compiling the bulk collection. But it didn't get rid of the ability to access bulk data to do contact chaining when you have some suspicious uh, persons or a person who's suspected of involvement in terrorism. You have their number and you want to see who else they're talking to. It's just the data stays in the hands of the telecommunication companies that have it in the first instance as part of their business records. So the way it works in the Freedom Act is the government goes to the FISC, to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, makes a showing based on reasonable and articulable suspicion that a particular target is a person who qualifies under the standard. And once the FISC signs off, they can go to all of the relevant telecommunication providers and say, hey, here's, here's this target. What have you got? And under the USA Freedom Act, Steve, I believe it goes out two hops from yep, there. Yep. So, so the idea is for the period covered, which I believe is 180 days uh, per instance, um, all your historical call data records, that is one record for each call in, one record for each call out, and depending on the number of phones you have and the number of providers you use and the frequency with which you communicate to and from other people, that for just one person for one hop may be a very large number. And then for each person, you then go out two hops, which is to say you then get the same data linkages for the persons they're at one level of direct contact with. And then you go out from those people to their contacts. So you have three tiers, if you will. And you don't need to be a math major, though you are, right. uh, to understand just how broad and how large a number that could end up being. If you had just one target, it'd be a really big number. Uh, in 2016, this is the first full year into that system, there were 42 targets, which to me, that's actually surprising. Only 42 times. I would have guessed the target list would have been more numerous than that. They only targeted 42 targets, uh, and that generated about 151 million distinctive call records, mm -hmm. CDRs, call mm -hmm. data records. Mm -hmm. um, then we just got through the ODNI, thanks to the Office of Civil Liberties Privacy and Transparency Report. We just got the new data. There were This time there were 40 instead of 42 targets, but the total number of CDRs went from 151 million to 534 million. So basically like a fourfold increase in the numbers. Uh, Steve, so obviously that's very interesting. Why does such a significant, you know, why does a fourfold increase occur? Um, no one is claiming, so far as I've seen, and I don't think it would be accurate to claim, that there's any reason to think that there's a different legal authority or a different interpretation of legal authorities that NSA is, or rather uh, Alex Joel, the civil liberties officer at ODNI, has expressly denied in an interview with uh, Charlie Savage, I believe, that there's any new interpretations going on. He said, look, we don't know. This this could be that they're you know they're they're constantly changing how they keep their records. People vary in how they use phones. There's a lot of possibilities that we explain it, um, but I at least see no story here. It's it's interesting, but it it doesn't to me matter unless there's reason to think it reveals a change of policy or law that in some fashion implicates. Uh, rules being different than what the public believes they are. And I don't see any basis to believe that. So I actually think, so I'm going I'm to go on a limb and say, I actually think this is not the story. I think I think the reporters, uh, that the focus on the 534 million number has missed what to me are the far more interesting data points. Red herring then. The, a little bit. All right, so tell me, what should we all be focused so, on? So I should say, I, I can't take credit for all of these. Some of these have come from discussions with my friend Liza Goitin at the Brendan Center. Um, but, you know, 
to get, we, we sort of noticed a couple of oddities. So first, um, so U.S. person query of call detail records rose from 22,000 to 31,000, right? Not a major thing, right? While U.S. person queries of 702 contents, right, this is interesting, right, rose from 5,000 to 7,500. And let's be clear, right, the FBI does not report their statistical numbers. This is just coming from NSA and CIA. You're saying there's a 50% increase in the number of queries of 702 data. For content. U.S. person contents, yeah. right? And that to, so, so that to me is actually a much more interesting change than the rise in the sort of two-hop number of CDRs you're generating. So give me some like hypotheses that explain why a 50% increase in querying U.S. person data because we can imagine good government and bad government stories on that. I don't know, but I'd like to know, right? Like, like I, you know, we can certainly imagine good government and bad government stories, and I, I it would be nice to have some yeah. sense of. Uh, listen, I'm not imputing nefarious intent to this yeah. data. I'm just pointing out the the data points that I found much more interesting. Yeah, I, I will say, you know, to answer my own question, so the good government story would be, all right, well, they're they're working more cases. They're they're pursuing more, putting more resources into them. Maybe um, the bad government story would have to be some sort of thing. You know, they're 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 improperly looking. But I think that we have systems in place that if something improper is going on, which have not always good, worked, they have not. Yeah, that's true. That's true of all systems. I'll, agreed. Um, but uh, I listen, think that, I think that we'll hear about it if something improper is going but on. But listen, I mean, I mean, USP con, USP query of seven hundred two content right has always been to me the most interesting and important and controversial feature of the seven hundred two program. No doubt. But but legal. You know, this is not. You know, the whole fact that they're publicly reporting. Here's how many times we asked for U.S. person Legal for the moment. Okay. Well, legal for the moment is true by definition for all laws currently in all force. Right. Uh, so um, the other thing is uh, U.S. person queries by NSA of 702 metadata went down from 30,000 to 17,000. So a, a, a shift, it seems, right, from 702 data, from con from metadata USP queries to content USP queries. Yeah, that's super. To me, that one's super interesting. Uh, again, I kind of looking for the what are what are the good government bad government stories there that obviously it's it's running in the direction of asking less questions so there's probably not a if there's a bad government story it would be like hey why aren't you guys using this authority indeed, enough no, um the good government story interesting i don't know um all right um was three more things um there was a drop in like prtt pen register trap trace um yeah. which may sort of be a harbinger like again right some of the sort of less robust authorities on the decline suggest that the government's finding what it needs in the more robust authorities. What's, you know what's interesting about that is there has been this sort of narrative out there about how, hey, it's getting harder and harder to access content because of uh, default encryption. Yeah. And anyways, we're living in the golden age of metadata. Interesting that the stats show a little shift. Toward content. Yeah, I mean, it, or well, it, it may be two separate things, right? That's, it may not be a trade-off, actually. It may just yeah. be two separately moving levers. We'll see. All right. Yeah. Uh, two last points. Um, for call data records, um, USA Freedom Act required the government to report the number of unique identifiers used to communicate that were collected under that authority, as opposed to just the the, the here's the, yeah because the there could be a lot of the same data, right. a lot of the same numbers calling each other. Right. They're the, not provided in the report. Uh, were they supposed to be? Yes. Well, that's weird. Yes. Is it? Is there an explanation? No. Yeah. And, and, and so far as I know, they haven't been reported elsewhere. Um, and then last but not least, so there was some controversy at the time USA Freedom was written about the FBI reporting requirements for when the FBI had to report that it was using this information to find evidence of criminal activity that was not foreign intelligence or national security related. And there was a real sort of pushback from civil liberties groups that the reporting requirement was written in a way where the answer would always be zero, right? So... Um, the reporting requirement is each reported instance in which FBI personnel received and reviewed Section 702 acquired information that the FBI identified as concerning a U.S. person 
in response to a query that was designed to return evidence of a crime unrelated to foreign intelligence. And the number of instances in which the FBI opened under the criminal investigative decision, an investigation of a U.S. person who is not considered a threat to national security based wholly or in part on an acquisition authorized under Section 702. I, I was tracking that for a while, and I thought, without a pen and paper, I'm not going to get all this. The, the short answer is, right, like, right. how many times did the FBI specifically misuse its authority to right, access right, 702 right. information about so a U.S. person? So the that we're going to track some data, but it's bound to produce a good stat. Yes, zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because which, it's you, know, you, want, you want that answer to be zero. That's good. But yes, but it doesn't, but it doesn't, but it doesn't tell you anything. Us, it doesn't tell us other interesting things right. about the proper, but nonetheless interesting use so all of this the authority. Is, so all this is my long way of saying, <laughs> like, the 534 number is like the, look over, you know, there's nothing to see over here. Right, look at right, right, look right. at the big number. And I actually think these other pieces are much more interesting. That is, I, I completely agree. I, the, the metadata trends are super interesting. Um, cool. All right. Um, wow. Lightning round? Let's do a go, lightning uh, round. We have a long lightning round. So okay. we have a two a two prong lightning round. So prong number one is litigation updates. Oh yeah, right. Um, so litigation updates. So in the ACLU mafia um, effort to get the FISA court to disclose more of its opinions, the FISA court issued a weird briefing order raising questions about whether it even has subject matter jurisdiction, notwithstanding that it has standing, because that's what the FISA court review just said, um, to consider a a request for records, right, since no statute expressly authorizes them to do it. Um, now, what's interesting here is the FISA court had actually ruled Bobby back in 2007 in a case with the brilliant caption, In Re Release of Court Records, like right, it. that the FISA court is an Article Three court, and that like an Article Three court, it has the inherent power to entertain motions to release its records. Interesting. So now that's... So the government has apparently the government is apparently trying to sort of push a different, like, push back against that 2007 ruling. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, that is, that is a big development. So, you know, I mean, maybe. I mean, maybe yeah. the, maybe maybe the FISA court will just say, fair. But that's interesting. And <laughs> they appointed. One, one word opinion. Um, Feh. Feh. Well, and they appointed Laura Donahue to argue it as amicus. So there you go. All right. Um, in the Nashiri case in the military commissions, we're still waiting for the CMCR. So I was at the JAG school last week. Um, I was actually next door to Judge Spath. We were not in the same room, despite <laughs> during my lecture on everything that went wrong with the military commissions. That's great. Um, but one of the theories that was offered while I was at the JAG school was that the CMCR might be waiting for Dalmazi. They don't want to do anything if it's all going to get unwound, anyways. I guess that just that would be so unusually cautious of the CMCR that I have a hard time believing that that's what's slowing coming up the works. I give the same reaction here. I give to everything having to do with the CMCR. They're just a waste station. Right, get out of the way. Things. All right. Um, but anyway, in the Nishiri case, if it ever does go back to trial, there is now a learned counsel. Because the military did, in fact, succeed in Shanghaiing, um, Navy reservist Brian Miser. He's been recalled. He's been recalled to active duty effective Friday. Is he, is he, is he in any way challenging that? I don't think he can. No, I, right? would, I would think not. Um, but here's the thing, right? The statute limits his recall to, to, to uh, 720 days. <laughs> Which normally I would say, like, well, that should be no problem. But, hey, that could certainly be a problem. Right. So, so, you know, I'm not sure that that's going to be enough. Um, Alas, I think you're probably right about that. All right. Um, Severstall Exports, we talked about this lawsuit challenging President Trump's new tariff policies. There was a very weird, like, stipulated joint yeah, dismissal. It just very quietly went away, and I have yet to find any news coverage uh, about this. So this is a Russian, you know, basically a Russian steel operation that challenged the tariffs in the Court of International Trade. They've stipulated dismissal with prejudice. Um, I, you know, I, it's hard to imagine there was a settlement, and uh, it, it 
nonetheless, the case has gone away. So, Weird. so much for that. Uh, maybe it was all just sort of a, a, a symbolic filing to begin with, and no, and they didn't want to actually throw uh, dollars away on lawyers trying to pursue the case. Maybe, but that's a, that's a sort of weird way for that case to, to disappear. Yeah, it just, it just it just feels a little funny. You wonder if there's more of a story there. Somebody find out. Tell us. All right, uh, really quickly on DACA, right? So we now have this weird phenomenon with the deferred action for childhood arrivals. You know, Bobby, there are now three nationwide injunctions barring the government from rescinding DACA, including most recently from. Your friend and mine, Judge John Bates, um, in the D.C. District Court, that that crazy bleeding heart liberal John Bates. Well, they keep doing these nationwide injunctions. Is this heading towards any sort of larger? So here's so here's where we're in the trouble. So the te- our, our great state of Texas um, has filed a lawsuit challenging the legality of DACA um, and you know seeking a nationwide injunction and picking a forum where they knew they would get a friendly judge, right? They filed it in the southern in Brownsville, Texas, so they could get before Judge Hainan. Um, now, leaving aside the blatant hypocrisy of these folks who have been criticizing these forum shopping nationwide injunctions from these liberals challenging the Trump administration. Um, We now have the specter of the possibility that Judge Hainan is going to issue a nationwide injunction against DACA itself so that you're going to have competing nationwide injunctions, one that orders DHS to continue enforcing DACA and granting yep. applications, and one that bars DHS from, oh, I don't know, enforcing right. DACA. So, so this immediately highlights the, you know, one of the arguments against the whole nationwide injunction practice, that it sort of circumvents the usual process of having the rules bubble up on a circuit-by-circuit circuit basis. But in this case, Steve, I assume this would immediately force the Supreme Court's hand. I think it would. I mean, it, like, I mean, it, much, would, it would obviously. Much more than that. the travel. So the travel ban, there's no competing nationwide injunctions, right? right? Whereas here, I don't, you know, right. you would have a scenario where DHS would actually be not potentially able to comply with both of them at once. Well, I actually, you know, so as far as it goes in the abstract, if it forces the court's hand, this is clearly an issue where the court ought to engage and and ultimately have the last word. Let's go ahead in the interest of efficiency. Let's get this up there as fast as possible. Maybe this is a good development. All right. uh, Quick Trumplandia development. Trumplandia. We need theme music for that that we can play. (laughs) Was it the Y5O? That is Y5O. I like that. I don't know why that could to be. Um, so, um, of course, the the latest the latest news from Trumplandia is that apparently John Kerry is violating the Logan Act. So you're not a fan of people who throw around the words treason prosecution or your second least favorite <laughs> charge, uh, Logan Act violation. I think Susan Hennessy has named me the um, the national no, it's not the Logan Act reporter. <laughs> so Logan's run will not uh, um, be your favorite. Anyway, so listen, the, the the claim is that Kerry is actually trying to get folks to try. You know, Kerry is working behind the scenes to try to salvage the Iran deal. Right? It's possible that by the time folks hear this podcast. President Trump will have scuttled the Iran deal. Um, and the claim is that Kerry is working to defeat the measures of the United States. So is this analogous to the, the similar claims that were mounted from the opposite direction against Mike Flynn? It, they are, so, yeah, to which deal. I was very critical. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not no, suggesting no. hypocrisy on your part. I'm just trying to draw yes. that out there. So I think it's, I mean, listen, the Logan Act, yes, it is used by the government internally. Right as a basis for investigations, as a lever, whatever. It has never been used successfully to prosecute someone, and I think it would be unconstitutional to the extent it was used in any one of these cases today. So I love seeing you aligned with the Hipsy Majority Report on Russia, which, as we noted a few episodes back, did uh, kind of interestingly throw in this recommendation. By the way, let's, let's get rid of the Logan, Logan Act. Act. So I will say the Logan Act seems to only serve one purpose. It's a political cudgel. It's not seeming to play any kind of... I think it serves two purposes. Well, it serves an internal That's uh, checking function. Right. I mean, right? I the internal purpose we shouldn't neglect, right? And Ryan Goodman's written about this. Um, Norm Eisen's written about this, right? That there yeah. actually is 
um, value and and utility to having behind the scenes. So but it's an interorum sort of effect. That's fine, but let's stop pretending that anyone's ever going to be prosecuted. Under but then it. you might, but then you might lose the internal interorum effect. Well, maybe that maybe that's not a bad thing. All right. Um, also, the big headline for a couple days last week was the specter of a grand jury subpoena from special counsel Mueller to President Trump. This got everybody up in a tizzy right, right. about, you know, well, I don't know, can you subpoena a president? And everyone's like, well, look at U.S. versus Nixon, where the Supreme Court enforced a subpoena against the president. Of course, that was for documents and tapes. Is it different if it's a grand jury? What do you, you think? Know, is, is testimony different? So Ben Wittes and I wrote a post about this on Lawfare, right? And I think the short answer is grand jury testimony, I think, is actually a... a the, the ball is more, like, there's no case that expressly says, yes, you can issue a grand jury subpoena to a president. I actually think the precedents militate even more in favor of allowing that to happen. As compared to documents, which are, documents have been green-lighted, and you're saying that the rationale for having the same rule for grand jury testimony is even stronger? Well, but also the grand jury versus a, a, a petty jury, right? Okay. So grand jury, the rules for relevancy right, for document, for subpoena requests for grand juries are much broader, right, than relevancy for a criminal trial. Okay. And so it's just like, I mean, there's a Supreme Court case called R Enterprises, where the court expressly says the narrow approach we took in Nixon to a subpoena in the context of a petty trial doesn't apply to grand jury subpoenas. Okay, um, so a fortiori, this would be harder for the president to resist. Especially because nothing would strip him of his entitlement to whatever privileges and immunities he might invoke as president once he gets up on the stand. Right, so I don't think he would have a privilege or immunity against testifying in the first place. But of course, he could refuse to answer questions that he thought implicated whatever his privilege or immunity are. Can you imagine no. if you were the random, no. the random person who, some random dude who the, ended up on that grand jury, one of the twenty-three Washingtonians <laughs> on federal grand jury duty? Oh my god. I say all this just because I think that's the big lever that Mueller has, right? That the way to get the president to potentially cooperate with him is that I think if this actually does go to court, right, Mueller would win in court on getting the president to comply with the grand jury subpoena. Doesn't mean the president would then listen to the courts, right? Then we'd have a constitutional crisis. Yeah, that that's so. I think that's why everyone is kind of sensing that the temperature is starting to creep up. And a we're lot. Gonna, we're going to get sooner or later. It does seem we're bound to get there. So. And, and, and just a quick history lesson, right? I mean, it was you know the president, the Saturday Night Massacre was a result, was a reaction to the president losing. Right, the right. first round of the subpoena fight with then special counsel Archibald Cox, right. and so you know the whole sort of the culmination of the fire Mueller movement, I think, is the day after he issues the grand jury subpoena. Ooh, man, you know it'll happen on a Friday. And you know, with Rudy Giuliani on board, what can go wrong? <laughs> so I just want to say, so there are all these people out there who are like, you know. What happened to Rudy Giuliani? All right, I grew up in New York. Yeah. All right, yeah. I, he was the U.S. attorney, and then he was the mayor. I don't know why anyone is surprised. No, listen, you know, I didn't grow up there. I, I'm a Texan by birth and inclination, but I did live six years in New York that overlapped pre and post 9-11. Right. And so I was there sort of when, when Giuliani was sort of at the peak of his powers pre-9-11. America's when, mayor. Well, when, when you know, he there were a lot of good things happening in New York at that time. And then there was this period, I would say, like, around 2000 where everybody was getting really sick of him because he was he was always spoiling for a fight for no good reason like when he tried to ban the street vendors that sell you know cheap uh, cheap bagels and hot dogs and stuff and and nuts. on the streets it's like listen that's where most of us are getting our food in the morning man and it was no real surprise later on to see that he uh you know 
got into various challenges. Um, by the way, breaking news, President Trump will, in fact, withdraw from the Iran deal. No surprise there. Ugh. All right. Um, last thing on Trumplandia, the scope of the Mueller investigation. Um, this has now, I think, become... So two things, right? Apparently, there's this whole controversy where Devin Nunes really demanded that the Justice Department show him the scope memo. And so eventually, this is, a, I think the New York Times reported this, then in April, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein finally acquiesced and said, fine, and had um, Nunes and Gowdy come to the Justice Department where they were allowed to see the memo, and Nunes didn't even look at it. <laughs> it's the principle of the thing. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that wasn't yeah. the Times. I think CNN broke that. All, All right. right. Um, and then, but also, we had this hearing before Judge T.S. Ellis, not T.S. Eliot. Right, right. right. Um, that would be impressive. That would be impressive. Uh, that would be hilarious. Um, at this hearing about uh, Paul Manafort's related but distinct grand jury indictment in Virginia, right. which is actually not necessarily part of the special and, counsel and if investigation. I'm not mistaken, he was arguing that, look, this whole thing sort of uh, poisoned at the outset because it comes out of an investigation that went beyond its authorized scope. Right. And so uh, Judge Ellis has basically asked the government to turn over to him in camera certain documentation. You know, um, sort of conspiracy theory Twitter had a field day with Judge Ellis's hostility towards the government. I think they're not used to Judge Ellis. Judge Ellis tends to talk a big game during oral argument and then, you know, actually follow the relevant precedents when the time comes. All right, so we'll see what happens there. But yeah, there were a lot of quotes of Ellis out there. Quotes of Elliot might have been more interesting. Um, This is the way the world ends. (laughs) He said it, man. (laughs) All right, uh, let's have some fun before we end this episode. All right, late 90s teen angst movies. So do we need to define the category? Well, you know that's my favorite part. So is American Pie a teen angst movie? I, okay, so there's there's the broad and the narrow. The, the, and, and, how me, late, and how late, or is it all not? How I, late does that have to be late nineties? Yeah, I think oh late nineties. Like is clueless? Could, does clueless count? Let's just make it nineties. All right, nineties. Uh, so that gets so, clueless into the mix. So to me, the yes. essence of the category, yes. which is not to say there isn't also stuff included at the more penumbral edge, but the, the essence, <laughs> the, of the, edge. The, the penumbral edge of, of teen angst movies. The essence of the category has got to be about the the existential challenges uh, of being of a high school kid. Being a high school kid and like dealing with love and uh-huh. lust and all the rest uh-huh. and, and you know drinking and partying and all the anxieties that people experience and then doing it in a way that's got a little touch of acknowledging that a lot of us we've all been there yeah. but also is just stupid and funny because if it's not kind of stupid right. and kind of funny then it's probably a different kind of movie it's I can't a, feel my legs yeah it's got <laughs> it's got to be it's got to have that dumb factor so take that and apply it to uh, American Pie uh yeah, I mean, you could argue like that's sort of a subgenre of the basically, you know, softcore excuse for for nudity type versions of this, and maybe we're more interested in the sort of the, the ones that are more about they're more funny and a little bit more clever. What do you think? Uh, works for me. Okay. All right. So any so other? You want, you, want, you want to do your top three? Yeah. Let's 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 take turns throwing them out there. Give me give me one of yours. So I am a big fan of Ten Things I Hate About You. Um, I think Ten Things I Hate About You is just one of those like. I mean, it's right. It's a it's a it's a whole Shakespearean play of the Taming of the Shrew. Yeah. Right. It's so funny. It gives it a little bit of cleverness. Right. It's funny. It's entertaining. Heath Ledger, I think that was like one of his first big roles. Yeah, it might have been his breakout. Um, it was I don't even breakout. Yeah, maybe um, good. It has the the fantastic line. I know you can be overwhelmed and you can be underwhelmed, but can you ever just be whelmed? <laughs> right. I mean, so so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with oh, a, that's good. Um, a big shout out to Ten Things I Hate About You. Okay. And, and by the way, and a great soundtrack. Yeah, you know, soundtrack is is key like, including for a lot of these including uh, letters to Cleo uh, uh, covering "I Want You to Want Me." Whatever happened to them? Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll we'll have to cue that up for later. Uh, 
With uh, my turn, I'll go with one that may be on your list because I think you mentioned it. it I, I don't really have anything to say substantively about why this really deserves it. I just enjoyed this one at yeah. the time. Uh, can't Hardly Wait. Yeah, so I was going to, so Can't Hardly Wait, actually, I think, I was going to go there next. So you're screwing me up now. But, right, Can't Hardly Wait, also, I think, an, an excellent example of the genre, um, right? Funny story, right? Like, you know, entertaining. You know, Seth, Seth Green's yep. subplot in, in his bizarre uh, sort of like you know his goggles uh, there, there's a lot of that's a key part of this genre is you got to have some like what, what was his character's name oh I don't remember the, the, like the Sester or something like that yeah I don't remember yeah. uh but, but that was that was an overall like like kind of paradigm example yep. of what that genre yep. is all about. So funny story. So Charlie Korsmo actually went to Yale Law School. Charlie Korsmo, who plays the the Uber nerd, right? The I can't feel my legs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he went to Yale Law School, and it was kind of funny because you could never. You know, the one thing you couldn't talk to him about was like you no, know his Hollywood right. career. <laughs> um, okay, so I get. Let me come back to mine since I, I also you stole yours. You stole here. mine. All right, here's one that I was quite sure is not on your list. Yes. I just enjoy this in its total awful badness. Yeah. Varsity Blues, James Vanderbeek. <laughs> Do you know this one? Of course, I know. It Varsity was an Blues. MTV film. <laughs> it is so great. It's like everything that's great about Friday Night Lights. I don't want your life. Exactly. Everything that's great about Friday Night Lights then turned into like not so great MTV movie, and yet in its badness, it's, uh, it's so endlessly charming. That uh, I don't want your life is is so wonderful. Uh, all all right. right, what do you got? Um, so this is it's a little early. I, I have two more, right? So it's a little early, but I think I think the whole genre was kicked off by Clueless, and I think you have to give a special shout out to the origination movie. I mean. You can, okay, fine. Yeah. Sorry, if we really okay. No, it's really the Brat Pack. It's the eighties. Okay, say like, like sixteen candles. Fast times at Fast times at Ridgemont High. Go back to it an earlier uh, Nick Cage. Uh, yeah. Okay, fine. Amer- was but it- but the night but 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 folks down the nineties. So Clueless, right. Alicia Silverstone. Oh yeah, right? no, that's I a mean, classic. Uh, you know Murray, right? You know, yo, you're getting on the freeway. <laughs> Everywhere in Los Angeles takes twenty minutes. Which is no, not really true. It's not true at all. Um, my my daddy is a litigator. That's the scariest kind of lawyer. He gets paid to argue with people. There's truth to that. All right, my, one more from you and one more from me. Okay, so this one is uh, arguably not going to fit the genre, but I, I think it, my last one won't either. Okay, good. I'm going with Dazed and Confused, Richard Linklater's oh, uh, all-time classic about life in Austin for high school kids in 1976. You're such a homer. That is that may be a homer, yes, but it's also genuinely an all-time classic, and and it really is. It's funny, it's interesting, and it is definitely about teen angst. All right, so with an honorable mention to not another teen movie, which I actually think is a pretty well done parody of all oh, of the the teen yeah. angst movies. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm gonna go out. So the the my last one, which I think isn't in the genre because it's a little bit late, um, is a 2002 version of this of this whole genre um, called The New Guy with DJ Qualls and Eliza Dushku. No, what oh. is this about? Um, it's about the new guy. Um, <laughs> Specifically? <laughs> so, you know, um, a guy who is big nerd and like dweeb and has other problems at other high school, you know, has dramatic episode and then transfers to a new high school. Uh, it's a fresh start. Where he's mistaken as like this total like bad guy. Like, you know, oh. he's the he's <laughs> yeah, the yeah. super cool so bad guy. So he decides guy. to play the role? And so he decides to play the role. Until it all comes unwound? In the great in the football game between his new school and his old school. Oh, so he's trying to hide. Is he, and is he doing the class? Is it sort of a missed out fire? Like a little bit. This way and he's that way. A little, little bit. So, you know, it's it's fun. And it's also a great soundtrack. Oh, is it? Okay. SR71 does a cover of Whip It by Devo. Nice. Yeah. Nice. 
Um, so, so just, you know, it, it ticks all the boxes for me. All right, listeners, you know that you have other choices that you think we're crazy <laughs> to have skipped. Let us know. Hit Seriously, us up. Seriously, give, give, give us the top five that we absolutely should be embarrassed to have missed. We're out there on at NSL Podcast. I'm also out there at at Bobby Chesney in... Steve. I'm out there just in general. You're out there. At Steve underscore Vladek. Um, you know, hopefully we won't have an emergency podcast this week, but if we do, well. See you soon. Either way, we'll talk to you next We'll talk to you in episode 74. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios.